0: Good evening, I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas, on the shadow of security. I think its mystery is that it has a kind of implicit power to allow people to stop thinking. If something is a security risk, particularly post 9-11, suddenly the kinds of concerns and constraints and questions that they would bring to something without Being formulated in a security context, seem to go out the window. Invoke security, and a long chain of consequences follows. Political debate is interrupted, and certain areas closed off to discussion. Precaution intensifies, which tends to increase alarm as much as to allay it. Secrecy increases, and failure becomes a kind of success as security agencies claim more resources with every danger they fail to foresee or forestall. Tonight on Ideas we explore the shadow of security. The program is part of a continuing series by David Cayley called In Search of Security. Twenty years ago
1: I could freely enter and leave the CBC building where I worked. Today I pass through a guarded turnstile using an electronic key that records my comings and goings. A similar change could be observed in many other places. Safety, security, and control have become contemporary obsessions. The air bristles with alarms, the terrorist alert, the health warning, the infernal yelps of cars whose security perimeters have been breached, Surveillance increases, with every move tracked by cameras, computers, and electronic cards. And the safer we try to make ourselves, the more fearful we become. Crime may go down. The fear of crime only goes up. Security is a one-way street whose direction is always more. Gates go up more easily than they come down. All this has implications that go far beyond the number of security guards or the number of passwords each of us has to remember. Concern with security has also become a form of government, meaning not just a way in which states govern their citizens, but also a way in which citizens govern themselves. This is particularly true in the United States, a society that is increasingly governed through crime. The expression comes from Jonathan Simon, a professor of law and social policy at the University of California in Berkeley, who's about to publish a book called Governing Through Crime. It's a phenomenon, he says, that goes far beyond the six million plus Americans who are now either in jail, on probation, or on
2: parole. It's not just the people who are being directly managed by the correctional system who are governed through crime. It's also middle-class families that situate their domestic lives in environments and in procedures of living that are focused on crime risk, uh, the fear of crime. If we think about fear of crime rather than punishment as one of our concerns, we'll notice that not just a portion of the poor, but in fact, vast portions of the middle and upper class live their lives in ways that are shaped by the fear of crime. And in that sense, they're governed through crime. And uh, you know, I've, I, I argue in the book, for instance, that the equal to the prison as a kind of architecture of governing through crime is the gated community, which uh, I I think is probably less prevalent in Canada than, uh, I hope, is less prevalent in Canada than is in the United States. But it's been estimated by demographers and uh, students of the real estate industry that that up to half of the new subdivisions being built in in sunbelt, high-growth states like Florida and California are gated communities. And uh, if you think about what a gated community is, is that they're based, they're focused on crime and the idea that living in them can somehow make us more secure from crime. But of course, the upshot of that is the infrastructure of life for many middle-class Americans, very much shaped by crime, is exacting enormous costs on their ability to get other things done. For instance, living in a gated community means you can't walk anywhere. You're virtually guaranteed to have to drive places. And that creates all kinds of externalities in your life. The concern that makes you want to protect your children by living in a gated community is also likely to go along with a broader regime of governing your children or managing your children that focuses on keeping them safe at any cost from crime, uh, which means not letting them walk anywhere, ride their bikes. Um, the typical middle-class suburban parent in the United States now has to think about their child from the time they leave to school for the rest of the day. Who's going to pick them up after school, take them to the soccer game, this, that. The, the world which I grew up in, which was in a dangerous place called the South Side of Chicago, was when you walked home from school and You had a few hours of relative freedom before your parents got home from work. That's gone now. Uh, People have to pay for or provide themselves kind of direct supervision of their children at enormous cost to, to couples that often have to have two jobs to be middle class today. And I think a huge amount of that is about crime. And in that sense, as much as I think the poor are harmed by both crime and the criminal justice system, in some ways, the middle class is equally disabling itself with this new regime.
1: According to Jonathan Simon, a feeling of insecurity increasingly determines where Americans live and how they organize their daily lives. And there is no more vivid symbol of this preoccupation, he says, than the
2: popularity of the sport utility vehicle. The SUV is an interesting case because on the surface it appears to be about adventure and extreme sports and things of this nature and the way they're marketed it's very interesting, but half the marketing is about that. So you'll see vehicles, SUVs driving along the rim of the Grand Canyon or other places that are, by the way, illegal to drive. So don't try it at home. But it at least appeals to the idea that the owner of these vehicles is somebody likely to do something exciting and adventuresome like that. But the other side of the advertising, and I think the much more pervasive reason that people actually buy them, is about security, especially from crime. I mean, yes, it's security from other people crashing into you, uh, but of course, we are increasingly aware that it may not offer, in a net sense, much security because of the rollover factor. But what it does offer, you know, that uh, apart from the car accident, and I think this is where the advertising often is focused, is a sense that you can be protected from crime, and in a sense. It's a mini criminal justice system that you can control yourself because you can, uh, they're all actually designed to look menacing uh, and they have names, So the, the new Nissan one, I think the big big new Nissan one is called the Armada, which you know, gives you a little flavor of how these are marketed. But the picture is basically one that you really can't count on the police. You certainly can't count on the prison system to contain dangerous people and you can't count on the police to, to save you if you're confronting them. You need to have a vehicle that can get you out of there and uh, it's one of the reasons why places like Miami, uh, where I lived for 10 years, which has no snow and no mountains or even hills uh, and virtually no four-wheel drive likely terrain that you would drive through, uh, the SUV is far and away the most popular vehicle there. And uh, it's because people see the environment itself, the urban environment, as uh, menacing enough to to require this, uh, this kind of... Uh, personalized um, justice or security system.
1: Fear of crime, in Jonathan Simon's view, is not a rational or calculated expectation. No more than the SUV is a rational response. SUVs offer no more real protection against crime than regular cars. Crime, he thinks, is rather a way of summing up the many catastrophic risks contemporary societies face from climate change
2: to terrorism. Across the industrialized world, we are now focused on sort of the catastrophic level of risk. And I would argue, in a sense, that if, if you think about what those catastrophic risks are, that crime, at least violent crime, you know, lends itself to that. It's a kind of retail catastrophe, a kind of uh, singular catastrophe. There, but there's a way in which being murdered uh, or even being robbed at gunpoint creates a kind of trauma that cannot be spread by insurance and similar mechanisms. Crime, Jonathan Simon argues, is a kind of
1: model threat, a stand-in for everything that is unmanageable about the world we live in. And as a form of retail catastrophe, in his telling expression, it's experienced as a risk too terrible to be spread or shared. In popular mythology, the inconsolable victim has come to signify the impossibility of shared risk. And this has helped to make the prevalence of crime a key element in the attack on the welfare
2: state. Crime is a kind of master metaphor of irresponsibility, and uh, it's certainly, you know, if you look at the rhetoric, for instance, of welfare reform in the United, or so-called reform in the United States. I think there's a very clear notion that was promoted by politicians of both parties in the end, but certainly by politicians like Ronald Reagan uh, in this country. It was that welfare essentially produced crime, that when you, uh, when you help people by, uh, by, by providing public assistance, uh, you are, uh, you're actually producing criminals. The idea that welfare
1: underwrites crime
2: represents a key
1: shift in the move from the welfare state to the contemporary neoliberal state. The United States, with its huge prison population, is undeniably an extreme case, but a milder version of the same shift is evident in all Western countries. In the era of welfareism, Jonathan Simon says, crime was conceived on the model of the work accident, something which could be largely prevented but was still bound to happen now and then, in which case the risk should be shared.
2: In the 20th century, under the, in the era of, of solidarity, as it were, of, of the insurance state, of the welfare state, crime doesn't go away. Uh, obviously, at various times in U.S. history, uh, even before our present, crime becomes a, a popular concern. But there is a sense in which it is assimilated to the model of the work accident. And in a way, the rehabilitative penal system was the realization of that, the idea that you have to have experts using various kinds of scientific techniques, uh, diagnostic techniques to make a judgment about crime risk and to ameliorate that risk through specialized, centralized deployment of expertise in prisons or if in the community through professionalized forms like parole and probation officers. It's kind of almost an insurance model of crime. Crime it doesn't necessarily go away completely, but we can reduce it by sharing the risk. You know, We share the risk by letting the person out of prison uh, after a certain amount of time because we're now convinced that the odds are good that they'll stay uh, out of crime. It seems to me now in the, you know, the, the the era of governing through crime is also this era where we no longer have confidence in the ability of collective risk-spreading institutions and their forms of expertise to adequately protect us. And of certainly terrorism is, it fits into that very much now too since, since 9-11. We can neither insure against this nor rely on traditional forms of expertise to help us identify it and prevent it. People have lost confidence, according
1: to Jonathan Simon, in both rehabilitation and shared risk. And this disillusionment expresses itself in what he calls populist punitiveness.
2: The populist side of it is this notion of a kind of anti-expert notion, which you see all over the place, starting in the 60s, sometimes on the left, sometimes on the right, kind of attacks on medical expertise, but other kinds of expertise as well. And there's a way in which populist punitiveness is uh, is, is very much an anti-expertise. Uh, three strikes when you're out is not about having criminologists and law professors working together to construct some very sophisticated kind of punishment that will deter or incapacitate or, or rehabilitate. It's, it's about satisfying a kind of popular rage and a popular desire to see both criminals and the state actors that have to handle them in a sense humiliated by the kind of rhetoric of almost a game. Three strikes and you're out. The other side of it is the punitiveness of it. I mean if we're in a world where we don't feel that we can be made more secure by systems like insurance then we want vengeance. I mean, it's almost like vengeance is the the alternative. I mean, and there there is a corollary here with the work accident. I mean, if you think about it, work accidents, especially fatal ones, which were very common at the turn of the 20th century in steel and iron and railroads and other industries, are also unspreadable events. The dead person doesn't come back. There's no compensation in that sense. But what made insurance a successful solution to the work accident was the amelioration of the family's condition through compensation and a discourse that in a sense de the issue of fault and blame for everybody and made the focus more on how can we make things better for the survivors and less on whose fault it was that this happened and there's a way in which the breakdown of confidence in those kinds of systems i think raises the general cultural taste for vengeance <clears throat>
1: Jonathan Simon's idea that people are governed through crime suggests that crime has symbolic functions that reach far beyond its actual occurrence. His argument does not discount the dramatic increase in registered crime between the 1960s and the 1990s. It says only that crime is also a storehouse of political fables, a way of saying who we are, why we live this way, and who the others are who threaten us. Another criminologist who has explored this metaphorical dimension of crime is Ian Loder of Keele University in England. Recently, he and some colleagues undertook a study of popular perceptions of crime in the town of Macclesfield near Manchester. Their interest was sparked by studies
3: showing that people's fear of crime bore little relation to the actual risk. There appeared to be this kind of mismatch between people's levels of objective risk and levels of fear and anxiety in the population. So the kind of common way in which this got posed was that those sections of the population which had the lowest levels of risk, say the elderly, tended to worry most about crime. And those who had the highest levels of objective risk, say no, young males from between the age of 18 and 25, tended to worry least about it. And this, this kind of seemed to be a puzzle to people. And this kind of uh, the whole idea of the irrational fear of crime and how you might address that as a kind of policy issue became a kind of quite prominent in kind of government circles in Britain. So, so we kind of started with a kind of dissatisfaction with that way of posing the problem, partly because it seemed to us that one of, the, one of the ways to kind of solve this riddle was to kind of explore the ways in which crime kind of serves as a metaphor in people's lives, a way of condensing other kinds of worries, anxieties, senses of trouble in the world, concerns about the future, whether that be in terms of their own personal biography, their, their, their kind of family and their kids, the, the neighbourhood in which they live, the town in which they live, the country in which they live. So we kind of took it upon ourselves to try and study something that a number of people had gestured at but never really kind of tackled empirically, which was to explore this idea of crime as metaphor. What Ian Loader and his colleagues found was
1: that people's attitudes towards crime are indeed a kind of distillation of their experience. What is at stake is usually an individual or group situation and not the actual likelihood of criminal harm.
3: We had a very interesting focus group one evening, which was um, based in this kind of old area of the town, just outside the town center, in which and we kind of leafleted this leafleted the street and various people came along. And this woman came along and her husband, just because she wanted to rant, basically, about the group of kids who hang around on this street. And you couldn't get her to talk about anything else, and she wanted to kind of, she was angry, she wanted to tell us all about it, she wanted us to do something about it, she wanted to tell the police. And her next-door neighbour came along, who was a 25-year-old architect who worked in Manchester, and she got not got the slightest idea what on earth she was talking about. And that, that kind of, it wasn't as if she had a different sense of what the problem was, she didn't know there was a problem. And that kind of struck us as interesting. And there was a kind of way in which that people's investment in these problems and kind of sense of identification and worry and fear and wanting to do something about it was partly about their level of, well, both their kind of investment in this particular neighborhood and also their sense of fixity in it, the sense that they couldn't really very easily go anywhere else. So consequently, this was both loomed rather larger as a problem in their lives. And also they had a much greater stake in trying to do something about it where some of the young professionals who kind of, no, not lived there as long, had kind of friendship networks outside the locality, envisaged a future in which they probably wouldn't be living in this place, tended to have much lower levels of concern and worry about this particular locality, partly because they just didn't experience them quite so closely, and partly because it's, it seemed kind of rather less bound up with their sense of, of their life trajectory, their, their broader place in the world.
1: Ian Loader began his study as he has said, out of dissatisfaction with the terms in which public perceptions of crime were being discussed. For him, the interesting question wasn't whether people make accurate estimates of their crime risk, but how people use the idea of crime to make sense of their circumstances. Because in practice, he says, the real and the imagined are always interwoven.
3: Merely because something is a a genuinely impressing problem doesn't mean that people don't think in metaphorical ways about it. You don't have to make that choice. And indeed part of what we were trying to do in Macclesfield was to refuse that choice between those who wanted to maintain that people's fears of crime were rational and grounded in experience and those who were trying to claim that they were the product of media-inspired moral panics, they were kind of diversion from from other kinds of social problems which are more serious. Um. And to kind of, in a sense, to kind of dissolve that opposition, which seemed to be kind of just unhelpful in how the debate was polarizing. People's views of crime inevitably
1: reflect their condition, in Ian Loder's view. His latest book is called Policing and the Condition of England. And there, along with co-author Aegon Mulcahy, he explores the complex mix of politics, culture, and memory with which people construct their opinions of policing security. And opinions require interpretation. They should neither be simply dismissed as irrational nor taken at face value. Because if you take demands for increased security at face value, he says, you risk not only missing the point but also entering a vicious circle. CCTV, which he refers to in a moment, means closed circuit television.
3: If you try and meet the demands for security or order or policing, in the terms in which they are posed, there's a way in which the process of meeting them kind of renews the kind of fears and anxieties that generated in the first place. And my kind of worry about this in part, and I think CCTV cameras is a good example of this, I mean there's been an explosion of CCTV cameras in England in the last... 10 or 15 years, it's the most surveyed society in the world, with the possible exception of Singapore. And my problem is that once you start to kind of endeavour to kind of satiate the demand for security with security measures, then you kind of endlessly ratchet up the crime control apparatus in a way that is very difficult to then dismantle. So the very practical example of that is if you put up a CCTV camera, say in any particular city centre, it becomes very difficult to imagine the conditions under which you could ever take it down again. This is partly because people's assessment of the risk they face is not just... They don't just get out the crime statistics and read them and kind of think, well, no, well, that's how at risk I am. It's a product of all kinds of things. It's a product of their of local gossip, of the experience of their friends, of reading the local newspapers, of all kinds of... It. So it's a kind of re- assessing risk at the level of everyday life is a very inexact science <laughs> um, and is a kind of cultural and social phenomenon. So the point, I think, with the CCTV example is this. Once the CCTV scheme goes up, either... Recorded crime rates go down, and therefore it seemed to work. So because it's worked, you need it to stay in place. Or crime rates, somehow, and people's levels of worry, continue to rise, in which the argument then becomes, well, we need more of these things, so we haven't got enough of them. So what what's kind of seems to me to be happening, and this is a product of trying to alleviate the demand for security using the vehicle of security, is this kind of endless ratcheting up of the gadgets and personnel and of crime control.
1: Security precaution feeds on itself. The fact that it's there proves the need, while failure only proves the need for more or better. The great danger in this self-perpetuating tendency, according to Ian Loder, is that as security grows, it displaces other ways of thinking about things. Problems that might formerly have been seen as requiring investigation or political debate are instead reframed as questions of security.
3: What security does is to kind of suggest a state of emergency and suggest that kind of normal processes of political deliberation and negotiation have somehow to be kind of peripheralized or in certain cases suspended. So... The language of security is the language of exception. It's the language of suspension. It's the language of imperative. And those kind of things don't fit very well with my understanding of democracy. Security can preempt
1: politics, Ian Loader says, but it can also become a source of political legitimacy. The dramatic change in the tenor of George Bush's presidency after September 11, 2001, is an obvious example of a security crisis lending cogency and legitimacy to a previously weak regime. Another, Ian Loder says, is the way in which security justifies the growing power of the European Union.
3: The whole sphere of European Union's activity around questions of security or what is termed justice and home affairs is kind of expanding as part of what the European Union does. And there has been this kind of huge expansion of activity around under that sign, equivalent in scale to the kinds of activity that went on in in the run-up to the single European market in 1992. Many more kind of policy initiatives, committees, working parties and so on and so forth. And there's a kind of danger and a temptation here, partly because in the the case of the European Union, the European Union has, has long had and currently has, a great deal of problems in kind of legitimating itself as a polity, and kind of demonstrating its relevance to Europe's citizens, and there's a kind of I think there's a kind of danger and a kind of sense that one of the things that's currently going on in European Union politics is that some of Europe's leaders, and you don't need to be conspiratorial about this, I don't there's not it's not a conspiracy theory, it's just um, that they kind of see questions of crime and justice or security and justice as a way of demonstrating, in the context of threats of international terrorism, organised crime, people trafficking, what have you demonstrating the relevance of europe to its citizens of kind of and of therefore constructing its legitimacy and the danger is it becomes a very particular form of political community when you go down that road it becomes a form of political community in which people are are kind of bound together in response to a whole series of threats that they seem to face so it becomes a kind of rather defensive and kind of I mean, in Richard Sennett's terms, a kind of purified community, that what bonds Europe together is the common threats that they face rather than anything more positive. Building community
1: under the sign of security is very like what Jonathan Simon calls governing through crime. It unites people according to what they are against rather than what they are for, and it risks entering the vicious circle of self-justifying precaution which Ian Loader has described. It's his view, therefore, that a good society is one that keeps this potential spiral under careful wraps.
3: As democratic citizens, we need to keep alive a suspiciousness about the notion of security, and and especially a suspiciousness about notions of security which are introduced in such a way as to say, well, no, what we need to do is to suspend this legal provision Suspend normal forms of political negotiation in this sphere because of the nature of the threat we face. Democratic societies, and that's one of the things that makes them difficult places to be for politicians, is that they should be places in which those kinds of claims are treated with a certain wariness, I think.
0: You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight's program is part of a continuing series by David Cayley called In Search of Security. In this episode, he's exploring the shadow of security.
1: Security and democracy, in Ian Loader's estimation, tend to pull in opposite directions. Criminologist Willem de Lint of the University of Windsor approaches the question of security along the same lines. In his view, security is about power, prediction, and control, while a lively participatory politics creates an open, unpredictable environment. And for this reason, he says, security considerations tend to freeze out politics.
4: When you talk of something, for instance, as a national security problem, you and I don't have enough information. So we, in a sense, are restricted from discussing and participating in the dialogue with respect to policy formation on the premise of national security problems. So when somebody says national security, you and I don't know. Then it's a matter of trust. So it freezes politics because Political dialogue is constricted in the face of the reference to national security. Even the judiciary retreats in front of national security. The legislature retreats in front of national security. The executive itself retreats in front of national security because they're afraid of the ramifications of questioning certain claims by those who can, with some authority, use the phrase national security. What
1: Willem de Lint calls retreat in the face of security's superior claim is exemplified by what happened in Canada after September 11, 2001. Within three months, with little study and less debate, the House of Commons had enacted Bill C-36, a 175-page omnibus that created scores of new crimes and significantly increased the power of the police.
4: States were told, do something, beef up your anti-terrorism legislation, you know, to tell us what you've done in 90 days. Canada came up with Bill C-36. This is all in the shadow of national security. We don't actually know what happened. It's a national security freeze. However, we're developing policy regardless. These are policies that are very important in terms of our political rights. And it can be done because it's in the shadow of a so-called national security crisis.
1: Canada's actions in the months after September 11, 2001, were taken to show strength and obedience. Whether the new laws were necessary or prudent was, in a sense, beside the point. A national security crisis, in Willem de Lint's view, is a moment at which everyone must bow before an assertion of collective strength and invest unquestioning trust in this strength. And people, he says, often want to fall in line in this way.
4: I think a lot of people, at least from my classes, for example, find it very compelling. They appreciate leadership. They appreciate being given direction. It makes them feel comfortable. It makes them feel like the burden of the ambiguity of their life world or what have you, is somewhat off their shoulders. Very few people like to, in a sense, be leaders. But the idea of leadership is very strong. And, of course, leadership and democracy are a little bit, uh, there is always a tension there. And so there is, I think, a charismatic element to it as well. The idea that this is our guy. Our guy is strong. Well, our guy, we, you know, there's a tribalism there. Our guy should be strong. It's very compelling. And I think it's dangerously compelling, personally, because, you know, leaders are, can also get you into trouble.
1: To Willem de Lint, security often names an abdication of responsibility, a withdrawal in the face of a power that promises to protect us if we don't ask it any annoying questions. And like Ian Loder, de Lint thinks that the logic of security is self-perpetuating. Because security, by definition, means knowledge of insecurity.
4: The production of security is the production of insecurity. It's a knowledge that produces more knowledge. So there is never an end to the production of insecurity. There's always something else that is discovered. There's always something else that we never thought about. There's always something more that wasn't in the sights earlier because fundamentally, we are insecure and secure. Fundamentally, we're we're always insecure as well as secure. So there's never an end to the uh, manipulation of security or manipulation of insecurity by those interested, private security purveyors, as well as those that are involved in government, are constantly discovering uh, new gaps in our security knowledge or insecurity knowledge. producing new opportunities to fill those gaps. That's just an endless production, and that's why security talk is, is dangerous engagement, because it's designed never to end.
1: Pursuit of security constantly reveals new insecurities, says Willem de Lint. What this means, I think, is not necessarily that all security provision is inherently self-defeating, but only that this self-defeating tendency is always present. So what is dangerous is the assumption that security is an unlimited good. Where its proper limits are, and when the nemesis of growing insecurity is likely to set in, has been one of the studies of criminologist Lucia Zedner of Oxford University. In a recent essay called Too Much Security, she speaks of the emergence of what she calls the security society, a social order that she thinks is marked by an acute preoccupation with the assessment of risk and the prevention and punishment of crime. And this new order, she says, is increasingly beset by a paradox.
5: This seems to me a deep irony that is that that security promises to increase our subjective sense of safety, to increase our personal well-being, but that it actually, the pursuit of security actually has the effect of increasing people's awareness of crime, their concern about crime and as a consequence their fear of crime. And one could say that this is an almost inevitable side effect of government policies to, to shift responsibility to citizens to say be aware, be street aware, be, be clear about your own responsibilities to protect yourself. And even if we accept that it makes good sociological sense to call upon citizens to involve themselves in crime control because it's unrealistic to expect that the state can do this single handed. We should expect that if you increase people's awareness of crime, not least by littering the world with what I've called anxiety makers, borrowing from another discipline. If you litter the world with these anxiety makers, the signals that that say that there's CCTV in operation, that there are security guards patrolling, that the car is alarmed, whatever. As we go about our daily business, we're continually aware of the, the fact of crime. We're reminded of crime, even to the extent that we have resort to security devices ourselves. We buy cell phones because we regard them as safety devices. We increasingly buy sports utility vehicles because they protect us from the outside world. But in so protecting us, they increase our sense of anxiety. And I don't think that it's by chance that the food chains of of America have developed the drive-in because people are now afraid to get out of their sports utility vehicle to the extent that it offers them security. It only offers them security while they remain within the car. Step outside, they're in this uncertain and frightening domain.
1: Preoccupation with security, in Lucia Zedner's view, produces a number of poisonous side effects. Heightened fear is one. Another is that it leads people to overlook the causes of crime and to focus only on how crime can be managed, avoided, or contained. And a third side effect, she says, is the impairment of civil liberty.
5: What I think we've observed happening is that the kind of security measures that we once accepted only in domains of high risk, for example, airports, where we, as travelers, accept that we will be subject to questioning, that we'll have our luggage and our persons searched, that we'll have objects taken from us, and so on. Those practices have now extended throughout social life, to borrow a phrase from some American colleagues Philly and Simon, the border is everywhere. That is, the security arrangements once thought only justifiable in the interests of, of very high security risks actually arise in, in everyday life. And, and perhaps the most transparent example of that is the CCTV camera, which intrudes upon our privacy rights without any really developed public debate about whether the benefits supposedly conferred by CCTV and its analogues are actually outweighing the costs to our civil liberties that they imply.
1: Closed-circuit television, as the Loder also remarked earlier, is now extraordinarily widespread in Britain. In central London, every inch is under observation. And this surveillance was instituted, Lucia Zedner says, without serious discussion or debate. This, for her, is an example of how security can take unchallenged precedence over other interests. And as a further example, she points to the ways in which crime control measures have begun to wear away old principles of justice.
5: Security has been sold so successfully, both within public and private domains, that it trumps everything, including justice. So providing you can say that this is in the interests of security, the discussion of the issue of justice is left very little space and one can see that in the current criminal justice bill passing through the the British Parliament the right to have one's previous criminal history excluded from consideration and until the sentencing stage the right not to be tried again for the same crime are both to be taken away by that bill and I think if one sees that in the context of the, the, the anxieties post 9-11, this is an action to enable the police to continue to go after people, even when they failed at first attempt. It's a, it's a very considerable erosion of civil liberties.
1: The Criminal Justice Reform Bill, which Lucia Zedner refers to here, has since become law. Another instance of the lengthening shadow she thinks security has begun to cast in contemporary societies. To her, this demands a revision of the prevailing view of security as an unqualified good, one of those things that benefits everyone simultaneously, like sunlight or clean air. She says, to the contrary, that the promotion of security has now begun to harm the public interest.
5: My claim is that, although security is posited as a public good, its pursuit is inimical to the good society and that on the face of it appears to be a perverse claim. Let me be clear, what I mean is the pursuit of security, not the end state. And what I mean is the means by which we're seeking to secure security are actually eroding the public good. They're eroding above all trust. Now trust is a a commodity in rather short supply in late modern anonymized urban societies. The question for me is whether we're eroding what trust we have further still by assuming that every stranger we meet is untrustworthy. So if one takes a simple example um, an employer who searches their employees on leaving the factory is signaling a profound lack of trust in those employees such that diminishes the relationship between employer and employees and and reduces such community as there might have been. So the cost here is that by pursuing security above all other public goods we become distrustful of others and we can no longer assume that we will be regarded as trustworthy ourselves and that seems to me inimical to my concept at least of the good society the way
1: out of this bind according to lucia zedner is to withdraw the blank check that is normally issued in the name of security security measures she says ought to be assessed like other interventions in view of the harm they do, as well as the good.
5: Security, just like other measures of crime control, is in need of special justification. And we need to think of principles by which we can ask the question, how much is too much security? And my suggestion is that we could do worse than looking at the the principles developed within the philosophy of punishment. So to give you just three examples, the principle of minimalism, criminal law says, De minimis non curat lex, the law shall not concern itself with trifles. It shouldn't be allowed to react, to bring the weight of the criminal justice state against very minor misdemeanors. It's clear in, in Britain at least that very minor levels of social nuisance are now being subject to security measures. Uh, the principle of minimalism would say, well, no, that's not acceptable. We shouldn't act against the noisy neighbour or the uncouth youth in the street with legal oppressive measures that reduce those people's civil liberties. Secondly, the principle of parsimony says that to the extent that we do pursue measures against those people, we should do it by the least costly means available to us. Uh, We shouldn't have recourse to the the heavy-handed method where the light-handed touch would do. Or thirdly, the principle of proportionality says that our response should be proportional to the harm done or the risk posed and that we shouldn't be allowed, for example, to exclude from the shopping mall the badly dressed youth simply in order to allow other shoppers to shop in comfort. Because what they've done or what they constitute by way of a threat to our sense of security is not sufficient to justify denying them the right to be there.
1: Lucia Zedner believes that the quest for security can be dangerous to trust, to civil liberty, to the mutuality on which a common life depends, and therefore ought to be pursued only within distinct limits and in clear view of the associated costs. She has spoken mainly of the everyday pursuit of security through public and private policing, through law, through technological gadgetry, and through the cultivation of suspicion. But we are also currently in the midst of a national security crisis, and it too has cost dearly in terms of civil liberty. In the next program of this series, I'll examine the national security landscape in Canada. But in the time remaining tonight, I want to turn to some of the things that have recently happened in the United States. Lawyer Kate Martin directs the Center for National Security Studies in Washington. Here, she describes what happened in the months after the World Trade Towers fell.
6: The Justice Department rounded up maybe about a thousand people and jailed them in secret. And in the immediate weeks following September 11th, the Attorney General announced every week that they had picked up another hundred people. And partly, I think, it was meant out of reassurance and partly it gave the impression that they had found that many potential terrorists in the United States. But what was remarkable about it was that they refused to give out the names of the people they were arresting and they refused to identify the charges against them. And there's pretty strong evidence that what the Justice Department did was hold people incommunicado so that they were unable to contact their friends or family on the outside and unable to secure counsel. In that situation, the only way to get yourself out of jail was to agree to voluntarily leave the United States.
1: According to Justice Department figures, some 515 people have been deported in this way. None of the detainees has ever been named by the government, as Kate Martin says. But journalists and other investigators have since identified some 200 of them and told their stories. They mostly amounted to having the wrong face in the wrong place at the wrong time.
6: A member of the public called the FBI and said that there were an unusual number of men meeting at a Middle Eastern grocery store. Presumably because they worked there, and those people found themselves in jail. There was the individual who was turned out to have been in line at the driver's license bureau after one of the hijackers. He found himself in jail. There was another Muslim individual who showed up at the same copy store that one of the hijackers had gone to. He found himself in jail. And then perhaps the kind of most telling story was the guy who drove his wife, an American citizen, to report for duty as a National Guards person after September 11th, in the week, I think, after September 11th. And when they showed up at the army fort where she was supposed to report for duty. She was wearing a um, Muslim headscarf, and they searched his car and found box cutters, and he found himself in jail for months.
1: The secret arrests and detentions that occurred after September 11th were just one element of a much broader assertion of state power. An omnibus anti-terrorism bill called the Patriot Act dramatically expanded the scope of government surveillance, even going so far as to oblige librarians to inform on citizens reading suspicious books. And the president seized new powers. The most disturbing of these, from Kate Martin's point of view, was the power to deprive even American citizens of their rights by declaring them enemy combatants, as was done in the case of a man named Jose Padilla.
6: In May of 2002, uh, Attorney General Ashcroft announced that they had arrested an individual named Jose Padilla at Chicago's O'Hare Airport that they suspected that he was working for Al-Qaeda and scouting out the possibility of setting off a dirty bomb, a um, low-level radioactive bomb inside the United States. He had initially been arrested by the, in the justice system and held as a material witness, but in secret. But Ashcroft called a press conference to announce that he had been transferred from the custody of the Justice Department to the custody of the Defense Department and was being held in secret, incommunicado, in a military brig in the United States. That was now almost 18 months ago. He has not been allowed to see a lawyer. He has not been allowed to see anyone. I don't believe that the Red Cross or any of the human rights groups have been allowed to see him. He is being held because the U.S. government says they need to interrogate him in secret. Kate Martin
1: gave this description of the Padilla case in an interview with me in the fall of 2003. A month later, a New York appeal court ruled that the president has no right to hold an American citizen without charge. And now, the U.S. Supreme Court has announced that it will hear the case and rule on the legality of the president's policy. According to Kate Martin, there's a lot at stake.
6: Well, it's really an extraordinary claim by the president of the United States that he has the authority to, quote, designate a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant, sweep him off the street, And hold them forever, basically, without access to a lawyer and without meaningful access to the courts. The government's response is, oh, we're only, you know, we're at war and this is a limited authority and it's historically been there. That is totally untrue. It's never happened before in the United States. There's no limit to that authority and there's no check on that authority. It's a lawless approach.
1: The Padilla case, in Kate Martin's view, represents a radical rejection of the rule of law. We spoke, as I said, before the Supreme Court announced that it would rule on the legality of the president's actions. But the court's decision to take on the case does reflect a trend that Kate Martin was already sensing at the time we talked. A lot of what you have heard tonight has concerned the growth of a securitized society, But there's also a reaction taking shape, at least to some of the more extreme post-September 11th measures. In Ottawa, the Arar inquiry is pending. And in Washington, Kate Martin says finally, the climate is also changing.
6: In October of 2001, one of the Justice Department architects of all of these measures was interesting. He said, well, we're at war, and what we need now is a military system of surveillance and a military justice system, talking about inside the United States. But that's been greeted with a lot of criticism by all sectors, including kind of moderate Republicans, people who are generally supportive of the administration's efforts against terrorism. And there is, of course, a growing grassroots opposition to what's called the Patriot Act, and there's a growing opposition and questioning by the immigrant community in the United States of all of these measures that seem to be targeted against immigrants and not targeted against terrorists. So much so that the politicians in Washington are actually paying attention. And I think that as long as there is not another terrible attack, it's not at all clear to me that they will succeed in really rolling all of these protections back.
0: On Ideas tonight, you've listened to Part 7 of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues next Wednesday with a program on national security in Canada. This series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the commission and to its director of research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant, Liz Naj the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts today and between the covers.